Good morning, everyone, and welcome to New Valley. I am so, so glad that you're here. Uh, today, we turn to Mark chapter 13, and this is considered to be one of the most difficult passages in the entire New Testament to interpret because it's talking about apocalyptic things. It's talking about end times. And it kind of reminds me of one of my favorite songs from my college days, the song by R.E.M. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. This may not be the end of the world, but in many ways it has felt like the end of the world as we have known it. But the question I've got for all of us this morning is this, how are you feeling? Do you feel fine? Do you feel strengthened? Do you feel encouraged? Today, we're going to discuss this passage asking three different questions, but it is my hope that even though our world has felt shaken, that you would feel the gospel's power. The first question I want us to look at this morning is this. Isn't this just religious extremism? This belief in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Belief in his first coming is something that almost everyone in our culture embraces. It's called Christmas. Jesus' first coming is this thing that culturally we totally are into, but his second coming does seem a bit strange to many of us. Is it fanatical? When I was a kid in sixth grade, um, my parents, my stepdad and my mom and I went on a vacation from southern Indiana to Florida, and my mom had bought or rented these tapes from an author and a pastor who was talking about the end of the world. And he was telling us from the Bible all these things that were about to happen in, in the world. And he went to certain passages and said, this refers to the United States. And he went to other passages and said, this refers uh, to the USSR, and this refers to Black Hawk, Black Hawk helicopters. And he kept saying, this is about to happen. Jesus Christ will return at any moment. But the problem was, what? He was wrong. Clearly, there is fanaticism regarding this issue. What should we think about it? Should we think about it at all? Is it central to the Christian faith, or is it more of a secondary issue? Church, the second coming of Jesus Christ is absolutely central to our faith. The Apostles' Creed, which we say here quite often, says this, and it's one of the earliest creeds of our faith. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. There are 318 verses in the New Testament that point to the second coming of Jesus Christ. In nearly every book in the New Testament, has a part where it is pointing us to his coming. So, in our passage also today, we are told to be on guard, to stay awake, and to keep awake. And so the answer to this question, is this just fanaticism, is clearly no. This is central to our Christian belief and our faith. But as we mentioned, this passage is very, very difficult to interpret. In it, is Jesus just talking about his second coming at the end of the age, when everything comes to an end, when he comes to judge the living and the dead? Is this passage only about that? Well, if that's the case, then what do we make of the part where Jesus says, this generation will not pass away until all of these things have taken place? 
That has led many people to believe that what Jesus is only talking about is what would happen in 70 AD, which was the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And so, in this passage, is he only talking about the events that would take place in 70 AD? When Titus, the general, came and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. If so, what are we to make of this part of the passage where Jesus is talking about the glorious coming of the Son of Man in the clouds? So is Jesus talking perhaps about both of these things? The events that would happen in 70 AD, but also the events that will take place ultimately in his final coming. Yes, that is what I believe this passage is talking about. I agree with the biblical scholars who teach that Jesus in this passage is using the destruction of the temple as a foreshadowing of his ultimate coming. The destruction of the temple was incredibly difficult to fathom. Not only was it the absolute centerpiece of their faith and their religious activity, it was physically enormous. Archaeologists have recently discovered the quarry where the stones uh, were made, and some of them were up to 26 feet long, and they served to lay the foundation of the temple. And to them, of course, this massive structure felt absolutely indestructible. Our world and our lives that we live in it also has felt indestructible to us. And everything that we have leaned into throughout our lives for security in this moment feels shaky. No one in their day could have imagined the destruction of the temple, and yet it happened. And none of us could have foreseen how one virus could cause so much trouble to the world, and yet it has. The destruction of the temple was meant to point the people of God, the people of Israel, and the people of the whole world to the fact that in Jesus Christ, God is now present in the Son of God. And then after He has ascended to the Father and the the Spirit of God was poured out, that we are now the temple of God. And in this moment, when it feels like our earth and our world is being shaken, I have to believe that the Lord means us to lean in to Him and to believe that He is our foundation, that He is the one to whom we must give our hope. Next, what is certain about His coming? There are all kinds of predictions. There's all kinds of things that people are going to say, even and especially in a moment like this where the earth is shaking and where there's difficulty throughout the world, there will be many predictions of when Christ will return. But what do we know for certain? And the big question, of course, that everyone wants to know is, when will Jesus Christ return in his second coming? Well, in our passage this morning, it says this, no one knows when Christ will return. Mark 13, 32 But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. His answer is, I don't even know the day or the hour of my coming. And so, friends, this verse can save us a ton of time, a ton of money, and and a ton of our mental capacity 
uh, by, in speculation, because if Jesus, who is God incarnate, and in that moment while here on earth did not know his coming, then it has to mean that none of us will ever guess or know when Christ comes again. The second thing that we can know for certain is this. Jesus' second coming will include the resurrection of the body. We know that it included Christ's resurrection in, in His original resurrection, but we know when He comes again, it will include the resurrection of the body. In 1 Thessalonians 4, it says this, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel. And with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. When Christ returns, we will then at that moment always be with him. And what is taught here is that at the time of Christ's return, all believing dead will be raised bodily. And all believers who are still alive will be changed in that moment and will meet them in the air. And then these two groups of people will be caught up together and will be with the Lord forever. Those people that we've lost who are in Christ are with the Lord even now, right this moment. But they are with Him in such a way that their souls are with Him. And we await the final consummation of all things, where our souls will be reunited with glorified bodies, resurrected bodies, and that is what will take place at the coming of our Lord. The next thing that I want us to see that we know for certain is this, the coming of our Lord will be personal. It will be Christ himself in triumph. It will be visible to all people, glorious, and it will usher in the day of judgment. In Acts 17, Luke says this, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And this word repentance means to turn around, to do a 180. And we tend to build our lives apart from God. We tend to build our lives on what we think is good, what we think is right, what we think is true. But to repent is to turn around and to say, Lord, I want to walk in your ways. I want to build my life not in rebellion against your life, but in you. You as the foundation. Luke goes on to say, Because God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, that man is Christ, whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The third question that I want us to see today is this. What difference should belief in the second coming of Christ make in our life right now? What difference does belief in this uh, make in our lives practically? And the first thing I want us to see is this. We should have a greater love for our neighbor in light of the second coming of Christ. In James Montgomery Boyce's great book, The Foundations of the Christian Faith, he wrote a story about this. He said this, if we're expecting the Lord's return, that conviction ought to alter our concern for social issues. At the height of the crisis in the U.S. in the 1960s, two signs hung on the wall of a restaurant 
in Decatur, Georgia. And this, the first sign was biblical. It read this, Jesus is coming again. And then the second sign right underneath it said this, we reserve the right to review, refuse service to anybody. Now, the sign implies that, that the owner of the restaurant, who apparently was looking for the return of Jesus, might refuse him service when he came. And because racial or any other form of discrimination, Boyce writes, is incongruous in light of Christ's coming, if we're motivated by prejudice, contemplating some sin, tearing down or criticizing other people, wasting our gifts, or in any other way failing to live as Christ's faithful disciples, then the return of Jesus has not made its proper impression on our thinking. Christ's coming, His return, the day of judgment ought to make us say, how much should I love my neighbor as I love myself? The second thing I want us to see is this. We should have great hope even in the midst of great grief and suffering. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes this, but I do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, though Jesus, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Last week, one of our closest friends from our church in Cincinnati passed away from a brain bleed. And she did so just two days after her brother died. Neither of them passed away from COVID-19. Luann was one of the most encouraging, loving, supportive, uh, and kind people I have ever known in my life. And Becky and I are grieving her loss grateful, or hugely right now. And we feel so much grief and pain and sorrow for Michael, her husband, and her only son, Aaron, whose wife is expecting their firstborn child right now. And as we grieve, though, we don't grieve as people without hope. We grieve and we have sorrow and we cry, and I have cried bitter tears over this loss. But we do so with hope, knowing that we will see our sister Luann again. And let me just say as a side note in this issue, just how beautiful the body of Christ is in God's church. Becky and I love Luann Thiesing and, and haven't seen her in at least two years. And yet, in spite of the distance of time and not seeing her face to face in many years, when she passed, our grief was so intense and so real because the love that God gives us for one another as a church and as the people of God is so powerful. The next thing I want us to see is this. We should have a greater power to forgive in light of the coming of Christ, the impact that this should come have on us personally. There is the power to forgive others through believing in the second coming of Jesus Christ. How? When somebody deeply hurts and wrongs us, we have a tendency to rush to judgment. We put ourselves on the judgment seat, and we know in our heart of hearts that's not the right thing to do. That God alone is the one that can sit in judgment, because God alone knows all things in every situation. He sees things perfectly. But at the same time, when we've been wronged, abused, or have suffered great evil or injustice, we need to know that no matter what happens in this life, and whether our judicial system here gets it right or not, that there will be a day of justice. 
and that evil will be held accountable. Now, the big problem here is this, of course. If there is no judgment day, there is no hope for justice in the world. I want you to think of the worst things that have happened in our society, in our world, in our history. If there is no coming day of judgment from God, there will be no justice for those things. And I want you to think, too, uh, just also, if there is a judgment day coming, though, if there is one coming, who among us will stand? Who among us can stand on the judgment day, considering how much we have built our lives apart from God? How much, much we have rebelled against Him? Francis Schaeffer is a well-known pastor and theologian, and he once talked about how, what if God had a, a hidden recorder in our lives and, and on our body somehow, and that it only recorded us the things that we said whenever we began to say should statements or make commandments like this is wrong and that is right and that person has done great wrong and they're, they're bad and I'm good or this person is good or that's bad and we make all these judgment calls and if God had the secret recording of our lives and then at the end of the age when he gathered us together and he said to us, you know what, I'm not going to judge you on the basis of my law and my commandments. I'm only going to judge you on the basis of the things that I heard you say about other people. Friends, I don't even think we could stand under those commandments, let alone God's. So, what is the solution to our problem? How can we sinners stand on the day of judgment with any hope at all? In Mark 13, Jesus describes judgment day when he returns. And it says this in verse 24, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then in Mark 15, it says this, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. What is this supposed to mean? Friends, for Christians, judgment day has already taken place. When Jesus Christ hung on a cruel cross and the Father turned his face away, and in that moment poured out his anger and his wrath against Christ for all the things that the world had done, including you and me, everything that we've done to build our lives apart from him, all the ways in which we rebelled, uh, rebelled against him, all of our hypocrisy, all of our sin, all the ways in which we've broken his commandments. Instead of the judgment falling on us in that moment, the judgment of God fell on Christ in order that we might be saved. Darkness came to him so that the sun could shine on us. He was forsaken so that we could be accepted. Jesus was cursed in order that we might be blessed. Friends, Jesus has overcome sin and Jesus has overcome death. And we have Christ and he has overcome our sin in such a way that we will never face the judgment day with fear. And he has overcome death in such a way that even as we face this global crisis, we can do so in a sense by saying to, the, to this fate, 
bring your worst. I have Christ. I have security. And in him I rest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We thank you for his coming into this world, incarnating himself, living his perfect life for us, living out a perfectly righteous life, loving you with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving his neighbor as himself always. And Father, we thank you for the fact that he died the death that we deserved. And he rose from the dead in such a way that we will have union with him in his resurrection. And we thank you that he has promised that he will return again in glory and in power. And we, Father, we thank you for the hope and the joy that we can have knowing the security that is in Christ when he comes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.